Hey, hey, and welcome to another episode of the Yours Truly podcast. This is episode 141, to be exact. My name is Claire Tuning. I am your host. I am a non-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. And today on the pod, we are talking with Jesse Hoffman, Dr. Jesse Hoffman, I should say, on all things gut health, which is a topic that I get a lot of questions about, especially how to stay away from the diet culture version of gut health and in all that goes into that and I am really excited to share that conversation with you and, and more about Jesse as well here in a couple of moments but before I get to that I should let you know that this episode of the podcast is brought to you by my online intuitive eating discovery course if you have ever wondered how to get started with intuitive eating how to break up with your dieting tools things like the scale and your food tracking devices, how to start reconnecting to your body's cues around food, and also begin challenging that voice of your inner food police, then this course was designed by me specifically for you. So the course itself contains a variety of resources that will help you learn how to take those first steps towards having a confident and a free relationship with food. It includes eight guided coaching lessons, each that are filled with real life tools that you can apply to your life as soon as you listen to those coaching modules. There are also downloadable PDF worksheets following each coaching lesson that contain key takeaways and journal prompts and activities to help you set realistic goals and take action on what you learn in each coaching lesson. You'll also get lifelong access to a private Facebook community exclusively for course participants where you can ask questions, tune into live Q&A sessions, and receive group support from both myself and other individuals navigating this process. And lastly, as a part of the course, there is some bonus content that comes for free with your enrollment, such as a 20-minute mindful eating module that's complete with a guided mindful eating experience. So you listen while you eat. It's really fun. Um, There's also a 45-minute body image Q&A with licensed professional counselor and body image coach Brianna Campos. You may know her as Body Image with Brie all the way back on episode 84 of the show. And you'll also get an additional resources guide to help you learn about intuitive eating from many of the other incredible practitioners and activists out there. And there's more bonus content as well, but I will stop the description there for now. So if you want to learn more about the course and claim your spot today, you can visit clairetuning.com slash course. Again, that's clairetuning.com slash course. And as a thank you for being a listener of the podcast, I would love to offer you a gift that is 10% off of your enrollment investment. So all you have to do to claim that is enter the code podcast all one word all together doesn't matter if it's uppercase or lowercase just the word podcast at checkout for 10% off of your enrollment investment that's clairetuning.com slash course and enter the code podcast at checkout for 10% off of your intuitive eating discovery course I hope to see you on our participant list very soon and I will have all of that information linked in the show notes as well in case you'd like to check it out after listening to today's episode with Jesse. But now comes that time in the episode where I feature a post from our Yours Truly Goal Slayer Facebook community. So this is a Facebook community that is open. It is free for anyone to join. So it is not the one that I just talked about with the course. This is a separate one, but this is a place for individuals who are interested in learning more about intuitive eating. They want a space to ask questions. They want to gather support from like-minded individuals. This is the spot. And I will tell you how to join us if you're not already there here in a couple of moments. But first, 
going to read this week's post. So this is a post that came through, I don't know, maybe a, a couple of days ago from when I'm recording this intro. And it's actually a topic that I've seen being talked about on social media, but this was the first individual to bring this conversation into our Facebook group. So I'm going to read the post verbatim, and I'm not even going to insert my two cents about this because there were a lot of comments that offered thoughts and ideas way better than I ever could have. So I'm just going to read some of the top comments in response to this post uh, in case you are wondering or thinking the same thing that this poster is. So they write, I'm looking for more external affirmations of my recent decision making. I hate how much plastic pre-packaged foods I use. I always used to prep lunches on Sundays so I could grab and go for cheaper and less waste. I've been in a long funk that has led me to buying more things pre-packaged for multiple reasons. I just ordered pre-cut up apples. Who am I? But otherwise, I won't eat. And if I do, it hasn't been many nutrient-dense foods. Please tell me eating something is better than nothing, even if I kill the earth a little in the process. I like the idea of if you don't know why it was made, it's not for you, but really at this point in my life, pre-packaged hard-boiled eggs are for me. So a couple of responses from other community members that really spoke to me, and I, I think they're great thoughts and answers to, to some of these thoughts that this person has that came out in a weird jumbled way, but you know what I mean. So one commenter writes, you can't save the planet if you are not nourished. Very true. Another commenter writes, I was just thinking about this and with all of these changes, I need things to be as simple as possible. And if that means packaged, then so be it. We have to nourish ourselves properly, however that may work for us. Maybe work to find a different area to focus on saving the planet so you can feel that you're breaking even. She ended that with a question mark, but you get the point. And lastly, just a friendly reminder that 100 companies make up 71% of the Earth's pollution. You are not one of those 100 companies. You are not responsible for companies' packaging and how much plastic they use. Companies are the biggest contributor of killing the earth because of their actions and decisions, not you. Yes, we can all stand to recycle more and choose less plastic when possible, but at the end of the day, you can only continue the fight to help the planet if you nourish your body. So like I said, I feel like I don't even need to add my two cents because these three comments sums up all of the thoughts that I had on this subject, but I hope you found this post to be helpful. I don't know if it's something that you have ever wondered, but if you're looking for a space to explore topics like this or ask any other questions or get affirmations on any thoughts you might have on the intuitive eating, healing your relationship with food side of things, I would love to have you come and join us. So the best way for you to do that is by visiting my website, that's clairetuning.com slash community this time. Again, clairetuning.com slash community. That link will take you directly to the webpage with the application that you'll need to fill out before joining the community just so I can get to know you. You can get to know our community guidelines and my team and I will read over that application as soon as you submit it and bring you into our community as soon as we can. Hope to see you there very soon. But uh, let's go ahead and talk about Dr. Jesse Hoffman. So Jesse is a registered dietitian with a PhD in nutritional sciences. Her graduate work researched the effects of nutritional components and environmental factors on gut health and cardiovascular disease. She has a strong passion for educating individuals about nutrition and the power of nourishing body and mind. Jessie's overall goal is to make nutrition science attainable. From breaking down nutrition science to busting myths that are oh so prevalent in today's society, she strives to empower individuals to become responsible consumers of social media content and experts on their own bodies. I have to add in my own two cents on this because if you are not already following Jessie on social media, she puts out so much content that is so educational. Like seriously, every time I click on one of Jessie's stories, especially some of the Q and A's that she will do, I believe on either 
Tuesday or Wednesday every week, she does a little question box Q&A on her Instagram story, but every time I click through those slides, I learn something, and that's pretty incredible. So uh, all of her information is in the show notes on how to follow her, how to get in contact with her, but a big plug for Jessie's Instagram. If you don't already follow her, be sure to do that after you listen. But in today's episode, Jessie and I talk about the huge, huge overlap between diet culture and the world of quote-unquote gut health. I actually refer to it in this episode as like the Venn diagram that's practically just one giant circle. So much overlap there between the two, but she explains what the gut microbiome is. She helps me tackle some of the biggest myths surrounding gut health and nutrition, and she even shares a few evidence-based truths when it comes to taking care of your gut. So without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Jesse. Hey Jesse, welcome to the Yours Julie podcast. How are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to chat. Of course. I I have been looking forward to this interview for a while because I selfishly have a lot of questions that I'm excited to ask you, but I'm, I'm sure our listeners will get, will get tons of value from it too. But before we get to all that, let's play a little this or that. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Crunchy or smooth peanut butter? Uh, it depends on my mood, but usually, usually smooth. Okay. It, Interesting that you say it depends on your mood. I feel like I've only ever met people who are firmly rooted in like the crunchy community or the smooth. Most people don't dabble in both. So, well, I'll be a little bit, um, I guess, controversial here, but peanut butter is not my like favorite thing. Like, I'll eat it, but it's not like I know I feel like people are very much like, oh my gosh, I love peanut butter. Uh Kind of just like a I didn't grow up eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I grew up eating bologna and cheese sandwiches. That was like my, my go-to. Um, so so I, hate to, I hate to tell you, we're going to have to end the interview here. Um, it was nice <laughs> to meet you, but I can no longer associate with you. No, it, it's so funny though, that you mentioned you grew up eating bologna and cheese. I'm smiling from ear to ear as you're saying this. I also grew up eating bologna and cheese sandwiches on white bread with the yellow mustard. Yep. We ate them yep. so often that my dad called them my 365 sandwich. <laughs> I would eat them 365 days a year. Yeah. And it wasn't until like late middle to early high school when I started like trying peanut butter and peanut butter mm-hmm. and jellies. And then they very quickly became my 365, but I'm with you on the yeah. bologna and cheese. Very delicious. <laughs> my mom would eat peanut butter pretty often because she's always struggled with just like if she has to eat like a certain kind of like a pretty substantial breakfast because she'll her blood sugar will drop. And so uh-huh. she knows that she can't just eat like a piece of bread or a bowl of cereal that she needs right. to have some like fats and proteins in there too. And she would always like peanut butter bend overs were like her thing. She was just like, if she's feeling like a little bit like, Ooh, I need something. She would just like peanut butter bend over. So like piece of bread, peanut butter folded over yeah. on the ghost snack. It took, it took me a minute to figure out what you meant when you were saying peanut butter bend over, but then I had a, I had a visual in my mind of, yeah, it's just a sandwich that you just fold the bread in half and there it is. All right. Well, you know, we'll continue the interview, even if you're not the biggest fan of peanut butter, I'll give you a pass on this one. Second question. Uh, do you prefer wearing like bright colors or are you more of a, I prefer to wear neutrals type of person? I tend to gravitate more towards bright colors. Um, I would say more sort of bright, bright colors. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, me too. I think, um, I think it's seasonal sometimes, mm-hmm. especially in the heat of the summer. I feel very drawn to like the neons. Let me be mm-hmm. as bright as possible. But then when it's cold, I tend to be a little bit more neutral. Yeah. 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 That's a thing. Showers or baths? Uh, showers. Me too. They feel more efficient. Yeah. And I, it annoys my husband so much. He'll take like a 30 minute shower and mine's like five minutes. And I'm just, cause I'm like, I'm not the type of person to just sit in the shower and just like think about life and like ponder things. I'm usually like, all right, I got to get in, get out, get everything done. I got to move on. This is a waste of time. It sounds like he's more of a, of a leisure shower yes, and you're yes. more of just like the, let me get it done. And then yep. on to the next task. Yep. Yeah. My mom's the exact same way. Final two questions. Uh, very important. Starbucks or Dunkin'? Starbucks. We don't have tons of, I mean, we do, but we don't have tons of Dunkin' around here, but and Starbucks. South, South Carolina? South Carolina. We have them, but it's not like up north where they're just like everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Here in, here in Virginia, um, I'd say we have like a pretty even balance of them. Yeah. Maybe a few more Starbucks than Dunkin', but 
I'm with you a hundred percent. I don't, I mean, I hope no one comes for me with this statement, but I, I really do not think Duncan's coffee tastes good. I just don't. Yeah. And I'll, I'll be honest. I don't think I've given it like a consistent try. I've just, Starbucks is just like my go-to because it's convenient. Like it's literally on my way into work. And so, yeah, maybe I need to give Duncan a fair try, but anytime I've tried it, I've been like, yeah, whatever. This is not that great. Yeah. Well, America runs on it, but we do not apparently. (laughs) Not me. (laughs) I don't either. Uh, Final question. Are you more of a traveler or a homebody? Oh, I'm definitely more of a homebody. Um, I do like love like comfort, like and like security and like consistent schedules. Mm-hmm. I'm like routine queen. Um, but I I really appreciate that my husband is a traveler and he like tries to he pushes me outside of my comfort zone. So we get to do some fun things and um, I keep him at home and he takes me traveling. So we kind of balance each other out really well. Yeah, I know next to nothing about your relationship with your husband from, from what limited information I do have, it seems like you all are a great balance, right? He takes a long time in the shower. You're, you just get up and go. He likes to travel. You stay at home. seems like a a good pairing in that way. (laughs) Yeah. And you'll love the fact that he has a PhD in nutrition too. So our, our topics of conversation are very, very interesting. Wow. I would imagine I, um, let me see, I'm trying to think back through like my, my dating history. I've never, seriously dated anyone who's in my field. I feel like for me, if I were ever in that situation, I would have to draw like a very firm boundary of like, okay, no more nutrition talk. Cause I'm sure both of you PhDs, like you can probably get so into the nitty gritty in your conversation that I would imagine maybe sometimes you have to step away from it and just be like two humans who are married, not two Mm -hmm. scientists. (laughs) Yep. And we did our PhDs together, which was a everyone was like joking. It was like, if your marriage can make it through this, you can make it through anything. And I'm like, okay, well, we made it through that and we're good. Um, but I, it was, it was funny. Like during our PhD, we, I like posted on my Instagram or something like things you would never like expect. It's just like having a heated debate about canola oil with your husband. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, was that in the wedding vows? Like we will <laughs> argue about canola oil. <laughs> That's funny. I, uh, I did not know that, but thank you for, yeah. for bringing that in. Maybe we'll have to bring him on eventually on the podcast. <laughs> I don't know if you podcast, but maybe eventually. Sure. Um, speaking of your PhD and being in the nutrition field, before I start asking you questions around the topic that we're here to discuss today related to gut health, could you just give our listeners just a little rundown of who you are, what you do, so they know where you're coming from when you're answering yeah. all my future questions? Yeah, so obviously my name is Jesse. I am currently a professor at Winthrop University in South Carolina. Um, I have, like Claire said, a PhD in um, nutrition, nutritional sciences, and then I'm also a registered dietitian. Um, so that's kind of my background. I got into research. Um, my first like dive into like the gut health world was during my master's. Um, and I was doing a research project on mice with grapes and gut health was just, or like the gut microbiome was just like a, like secondary outcome that we measured because my mentor was interested in it. And then from that point, I just like fell in love with it because this, the whole field was just like brand new. Like it just seemed like this like black box that you just got to dive into. It was completely unexplored. Um, and so I was very fortunate that when I started my PhD, I joined a lab in which the mentor was a little older, um, closer towards retirement. And he was basically like, you can pick whatever you want to study as long as it falls in line with like what we're funded to study, which was um, environmental pollutants and like overall health. Uh-huh. And so uniquely enough, the pollutants that we were studying, the primary route of exposure was through like ingesting like contaminated foods Mm -hmm. um and nobody was really looking at the gut microbiome and I'm like well if you're ingesting like food products like it has to pass through the GI tract so I mean basically anything you put in your mouth has the potential to alter the gut microbiome Mm -hmm. um so I did research on that and then we did like a dietary intervention um with inulin which is a type of dietary fiber so it was really fun so that's currently um I currently do research in the realm of gut health, but now more in humans. So I'm studying a lot with athletes um, and exercising individuals and things like that and looking at their gut health and their gut microbiome. I can, I can tell 
that you love what you do because the moment I asked you like, tell us more about you. And you just, I've never seen someone talk about the gut microbiome with so much passion in their eyes. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, but you're, you're touching on actually, you know, what we are here to talk about. I would love to kind of discuss throughout the entirety of our conversation, what I would call the Venn diagram, if you will, of like mm-hmm. diet culture on one side and then gut health on the other. And I would argue that in this Venn diagram, there's a lot of overlap going on. Um, But before we even get into that, you were throwing out a a couple of terms a moment ago when you were describing what you do. You were saying gut health in general. Mm -hmm. You said gut microbiome. And since these terms are so widely used and they're thrown around a lot, could you do maybe just give us a definition if it's even easily definable, like what you mean when you say gut health and then the gut microbiome. Yeah. Gut health is not well-defined. There was like a, I think it was a 2012 ish paper that attempted to define it. And they set out like five different parameters um, that they considered like encompassing gut health. And so it included things like absence of like GI diseases. So we're thinking like instances of like celiac and ulcerative colitis and any sort of like actual like pathology or like condition that someone would have going on. Um, They describe it as like effective immune status because our immune system, like a really large portion of it resides within our gut. And so if we have issues with our immune system, like this paper was like, well, there's potential for you to have suboptimal like or issues with your gut. Um, then the gut microbiome was an aspect of that. Um, and then like one of the big ones was just like effective digestion and absorption of food. Like, are you like digesting and breaking things down, um, properly and are you actually absorbing them? So, but for the purpose of like gut health and like the media and things like that, no one is really relying on like those papers and things like that to try to define it. It's not defined really well. It's just like, it's just really a buzzword in my opinion, Mm -hmm. um, It's unfortunate because it prevents people like me who are doing research in the field from trying to, from really being able to use it in a way that doesn't sound pseudosciencey and kind Mm -hmm. of BSE. Um, because it's like, well, I want the easiest way for me to explain to people like what I do. It's like, oh, I study gut health. Like I study the health of the gut, but like gut health has this such like, uh, I mean, like diet culture, pseudosciencey, just like right. scammy, like thread to it. It's just like when I say that, I cringe a little bit because I'm just like, I hope you, you understand that I'm like not studying like, I don't know, like these gut health detoxes and stuff right. like that. Yeah. But, um, but then the gut microbiome. So we can call it the gut microbiome and gut microbiota, which I end up using interchangeably. And a lot of scientists do use interchangeably. They just went in like conversation, but they do have like distinct meanings. Like when we talk about the gut microbiome, we're talking about like all the thing, all the bacteria, viruses and everything within our gut and their genetic material. And then when we're talking about like the gut microbiota, we're really talking about just like the like organisms that are there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tend to like in conversation, use them interchangeably. So for the purpose of this, I'm not talking about like really the genetic material that's kind of beyond this. I'm really just talking about like the bacteria and viruses and fungi and stuff that live within our gut. Um, and the majority of them, it's like 99% of the back of the organisms within our gut are bacteria. We do have like some yeast and like fungi and things like that, um, that live in there too. Thank you for those definitions. <laughs> uh, when you said fungi, all I can think about is um, all those puns. It's like, I'm a pretty fun guy. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully you maybe have some t-shirts or some sort of merchandise with, with I, that on it. But um, I definitely need the, I need some. <laughs> yeah. Well, something that you, you were saying earlier, which is really where I think we can kind of start for the rest of this conversation. You were saying that gut health tends to be a very buzzwordy type of topic and it's challenging for you as a scientist and as a researcher to present what you are doing in a way that does not (laughs) seem Mm -hmm. pseudoscience-y. And I'm curious to get your opinion. I feel like so many individuals maybe hear of, you know, gut health this and gut health that, and they kind of start going down all of these rabbit holes, right? Of this research, heavy air quotes there Mm -hmm. and things that we need to be doing more of and less of. And, you know, we could go a lot of ways with this, but I'm curious from your perspective, do you feel that individuals who are like super into gut health are more susceptible to like diet culture? Does diet culture prey on gut health? Like give me your, your input on that. 
Oh, for sure. I think like what you said with the Venn diagram, I think these fields overlap a lot. And I think that the area of gut health as it's presented on like social media and in the media is very much just diet culture. Like it is, it's not like a separate thing. It is diet culture. Mm -hmm. Um, because basically gut, like the gut microbiome, which is where the whole gut health fascination really stemmed from was like the study of the gut microbiome itself. Um, it's been associated, like you can associate these changes with any condition, any disease state possible. Like you can find associations, um, which some of them are like just happened per chance. And some of them may actually mean something, but to give a perspective, we have like trillions of bacteria that reside in our, in our gut and like thousands of different species. And so when you're studying something that has like that many like variable or like I guess sam sample size would be mm -hmm. appropriate, but like that many numbers of things that you're studying, the chance of like finding something like statistically is just higher. Um, so people really grasped onto the idea that just like, well, gut like the gut health is associated with this condition, gut health associated with this condition. And then like the diet culture in the field of just like individuals who are just really focused on weight loss, there were definitely, there were like early associations between like body size and the gut microbiome. And so that's probably where like diet culture really just like dove in was just kind of like fat phobic, you know, like focus on changing the gut microbiome because it's associated with like mm -hmm. weight and like we can find these associations. Um, and everyone always goes back to like, there were these mouse studies in which they transplanted the microbiomes from one, from a lean mouse to a mouse that was larger and the mouse that was larger got lean and then vice versa. And they were like, see, this is the golden ticket. And it's just like, we do this every few years. We say like, this is like the golden ticket and everyone wants to jump on the bandwagon of like, this is like the weight loss golden pill. And it's just like, I stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, it's this topic that has so many layers and it's so complicated. And I think we, I mean, just as humans, it's natural and it makes sense why we do this, but we're so inclined to just want a simple answer or like yeah. a simple explanation, which is why I feel like maybe this can kind of catapult us into the next layer of conversation. I feel like that's why we see so many of these like diets or these gut protocols where in my mind, I cannot speak to all of them, but at least the ones that I have seen, the common theme or the common thread in them is just like cutting out a laundry list of things, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, don't eat this and don't eat that and only eat certain amounts of this. And I I'm interested to hear your perspective because at least in the, the clients that I have worked with. So this mm -hmm. is from an, an anecdotal perspective of a practitioner who just works with human beings all day long, but I've seen so many individuals maybe try something like that where they're cutting out a laundry list of foods. And then at the end of whatever period of time, the end of that 30 days or a couple of months when they start reintroducing these foods, there's a lot of digestive discomfort, mm -hmm. right? And then it's like, then people really get into their heads, understandably so like, oh, this is why I need to cut this food out or this is why this food was bad. So I, I'm curious if you can speak to like why that happens, like why, when we cut out a bunch of things, there's maybe some discomfort when we start to reintegrate those foods and maybe how we can explain that and not immediately jump to the conclusion of like, something's wrong with me or like yeah. my gut health is terrible. Like, can you speak to that at all? Yeah. There's a ton of different reasons for why we think that individuals develop GI issues after like cutting something out for a, for a short period of time or a long period of time. It tends to be like a longer period of time. So like a few weeks to months or something like that. Um, it's not like if you cut something out from your diet for like, just had, didn't happen to eat it for one day that you're going to go back the next sure. day and you're going to be yeah. like, I can't break this down. Um, but several different facets, like one common one is that when people start to cut things out, they're under eating. Mm -hmm. um, they're not eating like as much like calorically, sometimes volume, and that can impact your gut motility. So if you're not putting something into your gut, things aren't going to be like moving normally. So you can kind of think like your GI tract is kind of like a muscle and just, just like our bodies need movement to kind of not get stiff and to kind of maintain like muscle mass and like just movement. Um, it's kind of like you use it, you you don't use it, you lose it kind of thing. So if you're not putting enough food into your GI tract, those like muscles and that motility is just not going to be like 
functioning at a normal level. Um, so people will feel like bloated and like constipated oftentimes with that. Another aspect of it is that we have digestive enzymes that help us break down certain foods. And if we cut out something for a long period of time, our body is not going to make enzymes that it doesn't need. And so if you cut something out and then you go back in to reintroduce it, it might take a while for your body to upregulate those enzymes again and to start being able to break down those foods. So what you would see with that is like, okay, well, if we can't break down foods properly, that means we can't absorb them properly. That means all the food is passing undigested, unabsorbed. And if it reaches our colon, which is where all of our bacteria are, our bacteria will certainly take the opportunity to digest things. And that's good from their standpoint, but they produce a lot of gases and things. Um, and when you're giving them like tons of stuff to break down, it can be really uncomfortable and right. you can have issues with constipation, but gas and bloat and things like that. Um, and then the last aspect is the gut microbiome. So the gut microbiome is super sensitive to like changes in dietary patterns, like even within like 24 hours of like a dietary change, your gut microbiome can shift. Um, and we can have changes throughout like even the day, like as with meals, we see like the gut microbiome like flux a little bit in their composition, but you tend to have like a core microbiome. But if you cut something out for a long period of time, our microbes are very interesting within our gut and it's like an ecosystem and they all kind of like have their like niche and like where they prefer like the foods that they prefer to metabolize and so if you cut something out you're not you're essentially not feeding like a certain population um and so if you don't have food like those microbes are just going to die out um they're not going to be able to compete so survival of the fittest in your gut um so the absence of certain microbes may influence some GI symptoms as well, or just shifts in your microbiome. Um, so tons of different potential explanation for why people may feel that way. Yeah, that's so fascinating. And I appreciate how you broke it down into like three different possible whys, because there, there are a lot of layers to this conversation. There's usually not just like one way of explaining why something is happening, but it really is this vicious cycle, right? Mm -hmm. Of like, I hear about this gut protocol. And I think the, so many people head into doing something like that with the best of intentions, right? It's like, yeah, I want to feel better, or I want to have more energy, like insert phrase here. So we head into these things with the best of intentions, but then we're off a certain food or a certain macronutrient category for a long period of time. And then like you were saying, we reintroduce it and it's an uncomfortable experience, mm -hmm. then what does that often lead us to do more restrictive eating? Mm -hmm. And as you talked about with that first point, if we're not eating enough in general, that's going to be one of the, the big cracks in the foundation that doesn't provide a good environment for um, a healthy gut. So since we're kind of on this topic of maybe things that we hear and are kind of buzzwordy. I'm curious if you have another, maybe we'll just start with one and then we'll kind of see what our, our timing is like, but another thing that you maybe hear really often that as a scientist and a researcher, immediately when you hear this, you were just like annoyed, red flag, people need to stop saying this. Like I am inviting you to, to get on your soapbox yeah. and maybe help us myth bust something that is, is really common. Well, one that goes along extremely well with what we were just talking about is the idea of like taking food sensitivity tests that oh, you can just like please. purchase over the counter. <laughs> they're like, and people always, anytime I answer a question about this on social media, they're like, but my allergist did a test on me. I'm like, I'm not talking about what your allergist, like right. in a medical setting, like there are some like doctors that will purchase these and do these tests and I hope that they get called out at some point, but for the most part, individuals, if you're going to see like a medical doctor, you're not getting these type of testing. And so you can be trusted that what you're getting is accurate. Um, but food sensitivities, food intolerances, food allergies are, are all different. Food allergy is an actual like immune response that can be, we can define those like we can test for those. We can figure out like what individual, like what an allergy, like what in, uh, allergies an individual may have. We can do that with blood tests and different types of tests too. That can be medically done, validated stuff. Um, food intolerances, we tend to think that those are like digestively mediated. So that would be kind of an example of like, you don't eat a lot of food for a long period of time and you don't have enough of an enzyme to bring something down. Mm -hmm. A common example of that is like lactose intolerance. A lot of us are lactose intolerant um, as we like 
get older, it's just kind of natural for us to lose that enzyme that helps us break down lactose. Um, very sad. That is yeah, very sad and, for all of us cheese lovers out there. Yes. <laughs> and some cult, some cultures and um, some individuals with different ethnicities may be more predisposed to developing this just, just the way that um, individuals have evolved over time. And like if they've had milk-based products in their diet, if they've kept this enzyme or not. Um, but that's what we can think of as like an intolerance. And we can define that too. There are certain tests to, to figure out like if you have an intolerance to something. Um, the term sensitivity is where things to get like really muddy. Um, sensitivity doesn't really have like a full definition. It just basically means you feel a little weird when you eat a food, like you don't feel great or yeah, yeah it's like something's not right. Um, and these have really been like these tests, these like blood tests that test for food sensitivities have been really popularized. And I saw them like on social media, like a few years ago, like they were giving like dietitians like codes to like share, like, you know, promote my, this food sensitivity test, use my code to get 10 bucks off or something like that. But they were like pushing it out to like influencers and dietitians and things like that. Um, and it's a lot of these blood-based tests are, they're based on an IgG antibody, which is a specific antibody um, that was within our blood and they're using it to base like the level of reactivity you have towards a certain food. So they screen like hundreds of different foods apparently and they basically give you this profile back and are like, all right, well, you're intolerant or you're sensitive to these foods, so you should cut them out. Um, but the IgG antibody is a memory antibody. So it basically just says, hey, I've had this food before. Yeah. So like you were talking about before, like with the, like cutting out food, feeling incredibly like, oh, like validating, like you cut it out and then you add it back in and you're like, oh, I feel like crap. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. Like you get this food sensitivity test done. It comes back and it tells you that you're intolerant or you're sensitive to like these like 50 foods, but a lot of them are the foods you eat every day. They're your favorite foods. And you're like, no wonder I felt like crap. These are the foods that I'm eating every day. Yeah. And so then it like, you cut them out and you may not feel relief, but you're also having like the issue of like, well, do I even like food anymore? Because I don't have all the foods that I like to eat. Um, so long story short, avoid these tests. They're BS. Um, you can, <clears throat> if you have a true like issue with food, you can explore that with a dietitian, with a doctor. Um, they have validated tools and methods to help you explore if that's something you need to like be concerned about. Um, but don't go over the counter by these like DIY at home tests. They're not good. They lead, I've seen them do more harm than good in like 99% of people. Um, it just leads down a route of like disordered eating for mm -hmm. a lot of people. Yeah. I, you took the words out of my mouth. I was gonna say, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, not only do they do harm in that they're making people a lot of the times unnecessarily so very fearful of their favorite foods and like mm -hmm. the foods that they have access to, they feel like they can't, or they shouldn't be eating it anymore, but also it opens up so many doors to disordered eating behaviors. It can lead to eating disorders because it takes away so many things that we use to fuel our bodies. Right. So it becomes mm -hmm. a, a very, very slippery slope, but I'm so glad that you address that whenever I do, um, like a Q and a box on any of my Instagram stories, I'll usually get between one and two questions about like food sensitivities. And, and ages ago on a Q and a episode, I did a, a brief blurb kind of describing what you just did, but I'm, I'm so happy that you went deeper. So listeners, if you take nothing else away from this episode, stay away from those yes. tests. So now that we've talked about a couple of things of what not to do and what to stay away from. I would love to redirect conversation to maybe a couple of like fundamental evidence-based truths, like yes. when it comes to just like the healthy gut, I'll, I'll use that phrase, even though it seems a little bit buzzwordy, but from your knowledge as a dietitian, as a researcher, if you were to offer our audience members, like a couple of tips that we feel good about, like we're going to focus on these things. What would that be? When it yeah. Comes 
So I, I give like several presentations to people and I always end, you know, whether it's a group of dietitians, whether it's a group of students, whether it's just people that are in the public, I always end with like this slide of like tips for like gut health and like supporting your gut health. And I always start with like the ba like basic principles of self-care or like what we have the most evidence for, for supporting gut health at this moment. Um, so from like a nutrition perspective, that's like, what I always tell people is like, diversify your diet, like make sure you're getting a wide variety of foods, make sure you're not exclusively like eliminating something uh, like, a, you know, un unnecessary eliminating a whole food group or, mm -hmm. you know, whole macronutrient or something like that. Diversify your diet. And from a perspective of getting enough fiber, getting enough fiber is really important, but also not getting too much too fiber, much fiber. <laughs> which if you work with someone, you know, if you work with people that have disordered eating or eating disorders, eating too much fiber is like a common thing like that you'll encounter there. Um, so making sure you're getting enough, but fiber, but not too much fiber. And so that really is just like, you don't have to go take a fiber supplement. You don't have to go buy fiber one bars, like just eat some fruits and vegetables and some whole grains and you're going to be fine. Um, then enough water. Like I think a lot of people kill the water with the whole like gallon challenge and yeah. things like that too much water is bad for your gut like can not um, bad for your gut is probably a harsh word but like is not optimal for some people to if you know you don't need to be forcing yourself force feeding yourself water but you need to be ensuring that you're getting enough water throughout the day too um, some gentle movement is incredibly helpful for gut health um, just gentle movements like walking or even like light cycling and things like that, like cyclical movements and like repetitive movements um, help with our GI motility. So individuals that have like constipation issues find that maybe going for a light, like leisurely walk can help with some of those like gut feelings. But it's also, we know that just movement just supports like overall healthy digestion and a healthy gut as well. Um, mindfulness is actually a really big area in terms of like gut health. And so like breathing techniques, because we have this really cool interaction between our gut and our brain, and we call it the gut brain axis, but basically our gut and our brain are directly connected, but then also connected through like different molecules and things that get secreted and released from both our brain and our gut and they communicate. Um, so fostering and supporting your mental health is really important for supporting your gut health. Um, along those same lines, sleep is really important too. So sleep and stress, just like stress management, um, and making sure that you're getting enough sleep can really support your gut health. So it doesn't have to be like this, like, I, I hate the whole like gut health protocols thing. Like people, I really have, it's turned me off to the word protocol because it's mm -hmm. just like, to me, when I hear the word protocol, I just hear, I just see like pseudoscience. Um, but basically like the staying away from those and just focusing on like the basics, um, everything that you really need for most people to support gut health is extremely simple and you don't need to go do all these crazy things to support your gut health, especially if you're not even doing the basic things first, like always start there. Yeah. I was, um, I was going to point out is I was reflecting back on everything that you were just saying, how you really took that question and your answer just brought us back to basics, right? It's like, we're eating enough first and foremost, uh, variety of foods, mm -hmm. fruits, vegetables, whole grains, water, uh, movement. I think it's so interesting too, that you bring in the mental health component because everything that you just listed, what are some of the first things that go out the window, metaphorically speaking, when we get into some of these, I'll use your favorite word, these protocols, right? Yeah. It's like, typically we're under eating in some way, shape or form, we are not eating a lot of diversity because we're cutting out either a tired food group, a big mm -hmm. macronutrient category, we're maybe overwatering ourselves. And all of these behaviors, oftentimes, at least in the experience of a lot of my clients, they come at the expense of our mental health and they lead to poor sleep. Like mm -hmm. if we're not eating enough, we might wake up in the middle of the night hungry. So yeah, it's funny. I, I think I made a post about this a while ago, or maybe I saw it in a tweet or on someone else's TikTok, but I find when dietitians or just healthcare professionals in general give an answer that encourages people to just come back to basics, people are just like, they want to, they want to throw hands, right? It's like, <laughs> they're like, no, what are you talking about? Like, I need to take this supplement and do this thing. And 
I think it's so fascinating how people are so quick to jump on board with a lot of these like pseudosciencey things. But then when it comes to someone who's encouraging eating enough and eating fruits and vegetables, we're so not quick to believe that. I'm sure you see this yeah. in the content that yeah. you put out. Yeah. And it's that this is something that I've, you know, I posted this like probably years ago at this point, but just like the real like truths of like nutrition and nutrition science and gut health, like the real truths behind them are not flashy. So if you see something that's flashy, it's usually like BS. It's usually not true. Um, and I think that's just like the same way with like diet culture, everyone wants this like quick fix magic pill, like, you know, every, they want the answer. And it's just like, yeah, let's, let's rewind a little bit. Like, are you even doing just like the basics? Are you like, are you taking care of yourself at the very basic level? Like, let's start there. And I think people just want, they expect that nutrition needs to be like super complicated and that you need to be miserable in order to like support your health. And it's just like, no, you, you don't like, you're actually better off, like not doing those things. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I think, and it's, it's a shame because I feel like in our fields, like the field of nutrition and then also gut health, um, individuals that are promoting like the basics and like doing your things like that, like just the very basic things, the evidence-based things don't get as much attention as those people that are like doing these like crazy things. Like the thing that I saw most recently with like the gut health thing was like the consuming like papaya seeds and like you're oh. pooping out a parasite. And I'm just like, <laughs> my mom's even sent me like reels and stuff on Instagram. And it's, it's just been like, have you seen this? They're saying that everyone has like worms in their gut. And I'm like, no, they don't like stop. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm so glad you brought this up because uh, I'm glad I'm not the only one that's been on papaya parasite TikTok. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because um, yeah, I, I've, I've seen so many videos, people who have maybe seen something, they've read something and then they're convinced like I must have this. And, and I don't bring this up to say like, your symptoms aren't real. Nothing's yeah. wrong with you. I mean, everyone definitely knows their body best, but I find it to be one of the problematic things with, um, social media. I mean, in general, especially on the topics of nutrition and gut health is people are talking about things out of context. And if we're exposed to these messages of things that like that person maybe never even would have thought to think that they have a parasite, but now since they've seen this thing, yeah. they're, they're all on board. So I think to uh, another message here is just be very mindful in the content that you consume and who it's coming from. And like you said, if it sounds too good to be true, and if it's super flashy, then the person who's promoting that is probably more in it to satisfy their own interests <laughs> rather than to look out for yours. So I think that's just a good rule of, of thumb to keep in mind for sure. Yeah. And then along those same lines, like if someone is creating a problem that you didn't know that you had, but then also happens to sell the solution, like run away. That's a little like, <laughs> like pooping out a parasite. Like, oh, well, if, if you eat this papaya seed, like you can poop out a parasite and you all have parasites. So I'd make this supplement that you just happen to have to like buy to help you like cleanse yourself of this. It's just like major red flag. You have stakes in this game. You are profiting off of this. Like you are creating like fear in someone and creating that fear response of like, oh my gosh, I have this. I need to go buy this. 100%. That's a great point. I never thought about it in the way that you just phrased it of if someone is creating a problem and they also happen to be selling a solution or they benefit from whatever the solution is. Yeah. Big red flag for yep. sure. Huge so, red flag. Um, we went a lot of places with this conversation. <laughs> I told you to be free flowing. Who would have known that we went from eating fruits and vegetables to pooping out parasites, you know, really yeah. went from <laughs> zero to a hundred, but um, I would love for you to share where our listeners can find out more about you or they can learn from you. Cause I'm very confident that after this conversation, people are going to be like, Oh my goodness, incredible resource when it comes to gut health. Tell me more. So where can they find you? Yeah, I'm predominantly on Instagram. I have not done the whole TikTok thing. It's very, I'm, I don't find myself to be like super funny. So I'm very intimidated by like TikTok and reels and things like that. So I tend to stick with the Instagram side of things. Um, but my handle is at Jesse Hoffman underscore PhD. I also have a website. It's jessiephd.com. 
Um, I do have uh, a course that I've worked with another dietitian on. Her name is Paige Smathers. She's another incredible, like intuitive eating, hazel-lined, um, non-weight focused dietitian. And we created um, and just recently revamped a really great course. It's called Positive Nutrition 101. So it's for people that want to learn about the science of nutrition um, from like a, without the gimmicks, without this like weight focused without like the BS and diet culture and everything, but truly just want to learn about some nutrition science. We do gut health in there too, but then we also really do like some practical things like meal planning and grocery shopping and, and how to kind of navigate BS. We do a whole myth, but myth busting lesson and stuff too. So that's really fun. That's also on my website as well. Um, and I am working on a gut health course, but other classes have like actual teaching classes have taken priority currently, yeah. but um, I stay pretty active on Instagram. That's where you can find me the most. And I do Q and A's every Wednesday. Um, I've done that for about two years now and I still do it. So that's a commitment. Q and A's yeah. every Wednesday. That's a commitment. Yeah. Well, um, I can only speak for myself, but I learn a ton from your Instagram content. So thank you for, for sharing all that you do. And I'm sure our listeners will, get on over there, follow along. And um, that's cool about your course as well. I, I didn't know that you had one, but it seems to be a, a good balance of like the myth busting and here's the why, and also the practical and here's what we do, or here's an idea. So I think it's, it's cool yeah. that there's a balance there. Yes. Uh, well, Jesse, it was so great to connect with you. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing your knowledge with our listeners and um, myth busting about the papaya seeds and parasites. <laughs> Um, but my friends, that is all we have for you here today on the Yours Julie podcast. So Jesse and I are going to sign off by saying Yours Julie, Claire, and, and Jesse. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for joining Dr. Jesse Hoffman and I for episode 141 here on the Yours Julie podcast, all about gut health from a non-diet perspective. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. I had so much fun recording this and learning from Jesse. So again, a huge thank you and a shout out to her. But as always, if you found this episode to be useful or if you enjoy anything else that you have ever heard here on the Yours Julie podcast, podcast. It would mean the world to me, truly, if you could take a moment, however much time you have, and tap those five stars. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, maybe leave a written review as well. Your support really helps the show grow more than you know. And if you're not listening on Apple Podcasts, if you're listening on Spotify or SoundCloud or wherever you might be, you can always take a screenshot of this episode and share it to your favorite social media platform. So it could be an Instagram story. If you're a you know TikToker, feel, feel free. Uh, but however you want to share it, I would be so, so grateful. And be sure to tag me as well at Claire Tuning so I can send you a personalized thank you for listening. But until next week, next Wednesday, when I'll have another episode here for you, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week ahead. Take care, stay safe, and we will talk soon.